Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, A Cass's Belly Project. This episode is another appendix in which I interviewed the creator of the documentary In Tony's Footsteps, Carl Timms, about the German occupation of the Channel Islands during the Second World War. The Channel Islands are the few small islands that lie off the Norman coast of France, the two largest being Guernsey and Jersey. The islands are essentially old feudal remnants of the Duchy of Normandy from all the way back when William the Conqueror first conquered the Kingdom of England. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the interview, and if you're interested in seeing the documentary, the details of how to do so are at the end of the episode. So let's begin Appendix C, In Tony's Footsteps, an interview with Carl Timms. Okay, so uh, Carl, thanks for being on the show. Uh, I guess first thing I want to ask you is just to uh, give me a little background about yourself and um, how you got interested in this particular topic and why you decided to make the documentary In Tony's Footsteps about the uh, Nazi occupation of the Channel Islands. Yeah, thank you, Sean. Well, first off, I'd just like to say thanks for, for having me on the on the show. It's uh, yeah, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity. So, um, yeah, it, it's uh, basically quite a personal. Uh, it was quite a personal story, I guess, in the sense that uh, I grew up in Guernsey, um, so uh, sort of born and raised. Uh, I live in the UK now, but um, uh, most of my family is still over there. And actually, my granddad uh, lived through the uh, the Nazi occupation, so he he had sort of first hand account of. Uh, of what it was like during those years. He was a teenager um, and as was the case with a lot of the, the people um, when we made the film, uh, they, they, it was mostly sort of people that were children, teenagers, um, not sort of fighting age and ha- had ended up stuck with their um, sort of mums and, uh, and grandparents, things like that in in the island. So um, so it was something that I was just, I'd grown up around like my whole life. You, you can't sort of miss it. If anybody's ever been to the Channel Islands, um, there are signs of the war uh, absolutely everywhere, but not in the not in the sense that you get kind of going around Europe where you see all the sort of rebuilding and the damage and everything else. It's it, it's almost like the opposite. Um, the Germans built and built and built um, and it's all still there. Um, you know, there, there's there's just dozens, if not hundreds of, of bunkers and gun emplacements and and all around the coast, everywhere you go, there's uh, the, there's signs that the occupation happened. So so you just can't miss it when you're growing up. And uh, and I suppose so that that sort of uh, interest started with me uh, as a kid playing around those uh, those bunkers, not really kind of aware of the significance and uh, and then kind of growing up and hearing stories from, uh, you know, my grandparents and and, uh, and other people that had, had lived through it. So. Um, yeah, that's what sort of led to, uh, I suppose, the initial interest in, in the project. Well, thanks. Yeah, that's really interesting that uh, you actually are born there and from there. And uh, I mean, the as someone who, you know, studies the Second World War often, you know, I've, I'm aware of the fact that the Channel Islands were occupied, but I've never really researched it beyond that, you know, just that general knowledge that that was something that occurred. So getting that kind of... Uh, personal first-hand account of the occupation was was fascinating to me um but actually how so how did your grandfather's um personal experience factor into the way you created the documentary or how you approached the story uh, well, I think it, it allowed us to just get a bit of, uh, I suppose, early early research done. So the the concept of the film actually came out. Um, the the director John um, and myself, uh, we were sort of old school friends, and um, he just mentioned to me we, we we were talking about making a, a film. We were saying, oh, we'd love to do something about the Channel Islands. You know, this was just after we'd moved to the UK for university, and um, he mentioned that actually in his granddad's attic. Um, 
he discovered this uh, this manual, which was it was just sort of tucked in a box, and uh, the, the the it was a a, a fireman's training manual in English. But um, but when he started flicking through it, there was uh, lots of writing all all the way through it in German, and uh, sort of letters and, and drawings and, and all sorts of stuff. Um, so so when he mentioned that he had this, uh, and having already sort of heard lots of different stories from my from my granddad about uh, what happened during the war, it, it got us thinking about uh, the the way that the stories have been presented up to that point. And I think one of the the key things I'd, I'd seen uh, and, and sort of read uh, around the occupation at that point was that uh, it was always focusing on the, the British experience of the occupation. So what it was like to be the islanders sort of occupied and, and that side of it, which obviously I'd heard from my from my granddad. Um, but seeing this stuff that was written by a German soldier, we thought, well, let's get it translated. Let's see if it's anything interesting. Um, and and actually it led us down this entire uh, sort of kickstarted really the entire journey because we uh, found that not only had the person written their name in there but they'd written where they were from um and uh, it, it was only a sort of short leap to thinking well well actually you know the the, the, um, the occupation through the eyes of the german occupiers has never really been had never really been addressed and uh, and so we thought let's do the most balanced account that's you know that's been produced so far and uh, and that led us on to a search to try and find uh, this the soldier and uh, anybody else that had served uh, around him and uh, and try and get the full the full picture of what happened and, and that's kind of what led to uh, the film being the, the way it is where it, where it actually focuses very heavily not just on the island experience but the uh, the german soldier experience as well okay yeah actually that um you kind of answered one of my questions for me already then because i was actually going to ask how you decided to tell the story not only from the occupied mm. perspective but from the german perspective as well um so essentially you just found this uh journal in your um uh, i guess your uh, partner's grandfather's attic yeah yeah absolutely he, he um it was uh, he'd said he just he just found it when he when he was a kid and uh, or his granddad had found it i can't remember but but they'd uh, but you know he he had it in his possession and and uh, yeah just flicking through it and realizing there was there was names and all sorts of things in there we thought oh wow you know this this could be this could be gold and um although you know no, nothing uh world shattering was was unearthed when we when we got it translated what it what it did give us was just a a little bit of an insight into uh, i suppose the the mindset of a of a young German soldier who you know posted to the islands and um, as I say the that experience hadn't really been covered and I think it's uh, as as time moves on you know it's, it's very easy to uh, to sort of forget that actually there's two sides to every story and um, and in many ways um, actually the the, the 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 stories we started to uncover in various ways sometimes were more interesting as to what was going on with the with the soldiers and and uh just just their experience going through the war because it was very different to what the the islanders were experiencing um but also sort of very relevant in its in its own way um and and just very different concerns and frustrations and and upsets and and, and all those sort of things that uh, than, than what the islanders were experiencing so it gave us a really uh, great foundation um, to see well what what we thought at the time was if we if we get a few of those stories uh, on both sides that that could be a really interesting uh, film and um, we were really lucky we, we found a very good uh, German researcher who who helped us translate the book and then he um, uh, Michael Antman his name was and he went uh, basically contacting a number of um, ex-servicemen uh, 
groups around Germany. And he, and he found about a dozen um, German soldiers who, who had served there. Um, again, they were all quite young. I think there was, there was one guy that was a, a major, um, actually made up to a major, and, and another guy who was a, um, a, a captain. So, so they, they were the most senior and kind of elderly of the, of the ones that we interviewed. But, but the rest were mostly for, sort of the younger end and uh, uh, served everything from sort of a year or two to the entire occupation in, in the islands. Um, and I think once we realized we had those interviews lined up and I knew it wasn't going to be a problem to get interviews around uh, the Channel Islands, we uh, we really thought we were, uh, you know, onto something. And um, and we tried to to make it as, as diverse as possible. So so we got everything from uh, sort of uh, the people like my granddad, who, as I say, were, were um, teenagers. We, we got uh, some people who were uh, some women who were adults during uh, the occupation and, and uh, sort of young young women that were uh left there without their sort of menfolk and um people who were who were small children and it was interesting to hearing their perspective on on how you know how you can look through a child's eyes at something like an occupation and realize just how different that is to uh, um to what the adults were going through yeah that's something i think you uh definitely were able to achieve in in the documentary in that there were i mean i was kind of surprised by the number of uh first-hand accounts you had from not only um, people who had lived under the occupation, and uh, I think there were a few readings from journals that you know residents of the Channel Islands had had kept, but also the number of Germans that were either stationed there or relatives of uh, Tony themselves that you were able to interview. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, I was wondering how you were able to track those people down. I mean, people who were lived on the Channel Islands, I assume, might have been a little easier. If you're from there, you know, you probably have a lot of the personal contacts. But how you were able to actually track down. Um, Tony's family members or just the the soldiers that have been stationed there during the war. Um, yeah, so the I think on the, the on Tony's side, the that that was where we really were kind of sitting there with our fingers crossed because we we sent this researcher out and and we we had no idea if we were going to unearth anything. And um, it turned out that actually because he'd written his name uh, and rank and, and everything inside this this journal, the uh, he, he'd actually put his hometown and his hometown was a, a little village called uh, Busdorf, which, um, which is actually uh, still there. It's, it's, it's a very small village in, in Germany. And, uh, and so because of the, the limited size of the place, uh, Michael, our, our researcher, just went direct to there and um, did a bit of research around, uh, asked a few people. And, and there were people that remembered the, the Kumpel family or, or knew, you know, went to school with him and, and that sort of thing. So, um, so it was, yeah, that was, that was where we really, uh, you know, I think that was, that was our first moment where we, we really thought uh, this is going to work. You know, we can, we can tell a story around this. And uh, uh, so that, that, that was really great. I, I think the rest of the soldiers then sort of fell into place because once they understood um, that it wasn't some sort of, um, you know, uh, piece that we were doing to, to sort of just look at um, a, a kind of, you know, anti-German sort of piece that we were doing. It was it was very much we, we went in saying we want to try and do a balanced account. We want your stories. We want their stories. And we just want to tell sort of as neutrally as possible what happened. Um, uh, they were really willing to, to come on board. And, and actually, some of the, the interviews that we shot were um, yeah, were, were fascinating. And, and there's there's so much stuff that we couldn't get into the film um, because we wanted to go for a certain certain length um that i i now sort of regret you know in the days of the internet you can do stuff that's three hours long and put it on <laughs> online and and uh and sadly we we limited ourselves um but but we've still got 
but uh, all those um, the rushes of all those uh, those interviews and my my plan is one day to just try and get them it's getting them translated but once I can get them translated get them up online because they're just fantastic historical accounts you know every one of them was interesting in its own way yeah definitely I that's something I totally understand and, and appreciate in that I mean in my own accounting of, of the war through my podcast I obviously you have to get the broad strokes but I try to incorporate the experiences or, or retell the tales of individuals so you kind of mm. get a the sense that this was actually a war that regular people and individuals experienced um, so actually while while we're talking about it can you just uh, give a little bit of a background on, on who Tony was you know where he was from in Germany and, and kind of how we ended up um, in the Channel Islands and I don't know if we want to spoil kind of the ending of what ends up happening to him, but, uh, but take it away. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so we found out that, um, by, by meeting some of his school friends, uh, we found out a bit about him. We actually got a school picture, which was, which was fabulous, you know, cause then we, we suddenly had a, had a face. Um, and, uh, and that, that was really, that was a kind of really strange moment actually, because we were, we, we, at that point we were sort of wondering, you know, if we'd find out much more about him, we didn't know at that point what had happened to him. Um, we, we hadn't really been able to dig very far, but suddenly you've got this, this face of somebody, you know, just a name and they, they're suddenly a person. And, and we, felt that we really wanted to try and uh just just do justice to that to that person and, and uh, you know see where that led us and um uh so by by talking to them we found out uh you know he he, he was he was a pretty average guy he was just a, an average kid average school child pretty good at art um he'd drawn a few things in uh, in the in the uh in the journal so so we had an idea that he was probably sort of into you know doodling and, and but drawing and, and he came from quite an artistic family um, but uh, but it sounds like his um, his storyline followed that of, of many of the children at that time in in uh, the early you know late thirties early forties. So um, they they joined the Hitler Youth because it was the thing to do. It was like the local youth club. You know everybody was joining. Um, then when the war started, they were they were recruiting out of that as soon as they were hitting um, uh, you know service age. Then. Um, then a lot of them were, were, were being conscripted and uh, he wasn't signed up straight away. Um, but uh, in 1942 was uh, was conscripted as, as part of uh, 319 Division, um, which was, uh, I believe, uh, the, the largest division that, that Germany recruited during uh, during the war. So it was, it was quite a, a just a, a large division, um, but a lot of conscripts and, uh, and young uh, young soldiers. So a significant amount of 319 Division were, were the first uh, or, or sort of some of the first soldiers transferred over to to the Channel Islands. Um, and I don't know whether or not at the time it really dawned on them uh, the, the significance of that posting and, and how how actually they were they were being moved uh, away from combat. Um, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that in a bit. But but the the experience with you know being signed up, you, you'd be expecting they're going to get sent to the front line. And actually, a lot of them were sent the opposite direction and ended uh, you know ended up in the, in the Channel Islands where um, you know, barely, barely a shot was fired. So um, so actually, I think. To start with, it was uh, it was a very um, cushy, you know. I suppose if you wanted to use the word cushy, post for for them because they uh, they were fairly safe and secure in in the islands. So um, so so yeah. He and we spoke to a number of other soldiers that um, that had very similar experience. So it was the same sort of thing, being signed up, um, you know, from uh, having been in the Hitler Youth, being sort of uh, at the time, just basically a lot of them were saying, you know, we we just we just didn't appreciate the severity of. Uh, of what that meant you know what it means now when you look at it um a lot of them just they did it because it's what all their mates were doing and um 
uh, yeah, I suppose that's that, that's a really hard thing to sort of get your head around when you when you sort of know of the the legacy of that. Um, but uh, yeah, I suppose uh, at the time they didn't know any better. Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> I suppose that's a whole other discussion. You know, the culpability of uh, your yeah. average German citizen. Uh, you know, in between nineteen. 19- 33 and, and 1945 but um yeah, absolutely. I, I mean i would agree i think uh they probably were relieved to be sent to uh, the channel islands and i think a few times in in the documentary not only from the german perspective but from the uh the the islanders perspective um it does seem like it was a pretty you know not a of all the places you could be in uh in the world in 1942 or you know what, what year did the invasion occur? 19. Uh, it was 1940. Yes, yeah. so it was June, right. June 1940, right through to to the end of the war. So. Yeah. So I mean, of all the places in the world you could be under occupation from 1940 to 1945, that that's probably not one of the worst places in the world. Um, and yeah, from both perspectives, it seems like the islanders had a fairly decent relationship with the occupiers, and the occupiers, for the most part, uh, you know, would stand watch and then. Um, and then kind of go about their business and, and try to enjoy their lives to an extent, at least until uh, June 1944, when they more or less were cut off. Yeah, it was I mean, it was a very um, I suppose it, it's it, it's almost hard to, to sort of imagine, I guess, what, what it was like at the time. But um, the circumstances leading up to the uh, initial invasion were that uh, pretty much all the men of fighting age had, had signed up. So they were off uh, in the um, Allied Army um, fighting. They'd either been over in Dunkirk or in the UK. So it was uh, it was quite tricky. The, the Germans uh, were invading. Uh, quite a lot of people had the option of going to the UK. They decided to stay uh, to mainland Britain and they and they decided to stay. Um, but it was uh, for the most part, it was uh, it was kind of the, the, the women, the children and uh, and the elderly. Um, or sort of non-service age, and um, suddenly you've got your enemy on on the doorstep. But I think it's it's quite hard for people to, who haven't been to the islands to sort of take in uh, how small a, a landmass we're talking. And um, and and so one of the things, one of the big questions over the years has always been, oh, why didn't people put up some sort of resistance? But this is this is islands where they had no militia, no weapons, uh, no men of fighting age. Um, and, and I mean, the island I grew up in is 22 square miles. It's, uh, it, you know, it, it's pretty tiny. And, uh, and you just imagine they were, it, it was, it reached a point where actually it was, uh, it was something like, uh, one soldier for every two civilians that were over there. So it was, um, a, a huge amount of, uh, of German military might was, was moved into the island. Um, and, the way they approached it was very clever because they they decided. I mean, Hitler decided that this he wanted this to be a propaganda piece, and so um, they their their orders were to be as polite as as possible and to be as friendly as possible and to uh, to to try and keep things uh, as as um, you know calm as possible, so that uh, Britain would see uh, you know the, the benevolent German government you know taking over their territory, and this is what it would be like. Which, based on you know, when you see what happened around the rest of Europe, you know, it's, you know, it's not what would happen. But uh, but that's the way they went in, and um, bar some certain restrictions that they that they put in place, actually they they let the islanders try to sort of live their life as much as they could. But there was there's always that element of you know you need to survive, you need a job. There are very few jobs. So do you work for the German government? Because that's where most of the, the jobs were. They took over the local government, but they still left. Um, they left all the local councillors and things in place. So there was still an administrative 
uh, island set up across uh, all the islands. And, um, and so that's where most of the jobs were. So, so you reach that point of going, well, you know, it, how are you going to resist this? How, how can you show it? You, you could refuse to work, but then who's feeding your family or, or uh, you know, and, and, and so you, very quickly, uh, most of the island ended up working, I mean, technically, you know, working directly for, for the soldiers that were serving there and, uh, and sort of shops and things were going out of business, but there were other opportunities. So, <clears throat> so it was, yeah, it's really kind of a, almost like unique um, in a way. Uh, and I think over the years, it's caused a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of questions about, uh, you know, what could have been done, was enough done. Actually, did the British government do enough to try and, you know, to try and intervene? I mean, they, they, the, the thinking was that the, the British were going to try and take them back at some point. Um, but but I think actually uh, they they knew that if they did, it was going to be an absolute massacre because um, a the, the the islands were uh, you know are, are surrounded all sides with cliffs and and small bays that are easily to defend it would have been a, a huge loss of of allied life to try and take them back um and also the civilian population there were so many of them stuck there that uh, they'd have just been caught in the caught in the crossfire so actually the they realized strategically the islands weren't that uh useful to to the, to the british so uh, so they just did nothing and sort of sat back and let it happen and and so i guess you had this weird situation where if the islanders played ball, the Germans left them to it. The, the British weren't getting involved. They didn't want to take the land back. So so it all just kind of ticked along for a couple of years quite, you know, quite nicely. But then over time, there were things that started to happen that uh, that started to trigger uh, much more sort of ill feeling. People coming to the realisation, obviously, they're not in the day of like social media and stuff. So so it was hard for them to sometimes get the, the facts straight out. But um, starting to see firsthand the way. Uh, things like the slave labourers were, were treated, uh, the organisation tote uh, um, slave labourers. So that that sort of stuff really started to build. And over time, little sort of underground movements started to do at least things like try and help labourers who had escaped um, or, uh, you know, just administrative people trying to just do little things here and there to just mess up, uh, you know, the odd uh, supply line or, or that sort of stuff. So it was kind of a, a paper war, you know, and... Um, Right. And I I think uh, just to clarify, you're you're speaking of the um, for the listeners that the various POWs or political prisoners are just essentially uh, undesirables from throughout the, the German Empire had been some of them have been shipped to the, the Channel Islands as slave labor. I think there's a, at one point you have a specific story about a I, I think it was a Russian that was captured and, and sent to the island. Uh, yes, that's right. So, um, so there was uh, there was actually a feature film that came out a couple of years ago called uh, Another Mother's Son, uh, and some of your um, listeners might might have seen that one. But it's um, it tells the story uh, of a lady called uh, Louisa Gould, and she uh, she actually um, started housing escaped uh, labourers. So, so basically, some of them would uh, would get away. They they would pretend to be French or, or something. Else try to sort of uh, hide themselves amongst the population when she cottoned onto this she um, she started looking after them and and uh, basically um we met a chap called bob lasseur who um who actually was a young guy at the time working in administration he he um knew louisa and one day he went around to her house and he met uh, this chap uh, who was talking in kind of russian but he just knew that uh, not russian sorry yeah german 
uh, sorry, French. And uh, <laughs> the, the French that the guy was talking, he knew wasn't a French guy talking. It's, it uh, you know, it was obviously a, a different accent. And so um, he found out that this chap was was one of the Russians. Um, and he just started doing little things to help uh, Louisa out. And uh, before he knew it, he was kind of embroiled in this uh, sort of underground uh, network, you know, to try and try and keep them safe. And they, and they managed to keep um a number of uh, a number of these laborers sort of safe for 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 you know a very long time and some some of them got recaptured um i mean sadly uh, louise's uh, story you know didn't didn't end well uh, because of this and uh, um that's that's sort of detailed in in the film and and in the documentary um what was right. about that actually was that we we interviewed many years before another mother's son came out um and he actually uses that very that specific line in in our film um, when he's talking about it. So as soon as I saw that film title, I, I knew exactly where um, that story had come from. And, uh, and you know, he, he was heavily involved in the, in the making of that film. So um, wow. it was a yeah, fascinating story and uh, a yeah, really fascinating guy. And actually you guys, you actually began filming and, and uh, sort of developing this story something like 10 or 15 years ago. And it only just now you were able to publish it. Um, so, so we, uh, when we first made the film, because we, we shot it in 2001, I think it was 2003 before it was finished. So, yeah, it's been it's been a long time. It amazes me how long it's been. But um, but the film really, uh, I mean, we at the time, obviously, there was no YouTube or anything. So we were putting it out just on DVD. We were selling it uh, to tourists around the island. We've we've sold a few um, uh, all over the world. You know, we've sold some to the States, to, to you know, Japan, all sorts. Um, but uh, but in very you know just small numbers. And it, and it took uh, a long time for me to sort of realize that fil films like this don't don't really age they, they might age in terms of the look uh, you know because the technologies move on i mean right I'd say i'd love to say this was shot in 4k but uh, sadly it just wasn't <laughs> you know the technology at the time so we've we've done the i think as good a job as we can to to, to make it viable but the thing is like any historical document it's the stories that, that really matter and and it, i just i think i sat on it for far too long and, and then john and i were just saying well we we really need to to get this story out because it's um there's nothing else like it sort of coming out at the moment and uh and most of those people that we've interviewed many of them you know no longer with us and uh and if i i just feel we sort of owed it to them to to get the film back out and, and available and um uh, in a digital format so so we can sort of hopefully get it out to a wider a wider audience Right. Yeah. I mean, it definitely seems like you kind of got in there right at the, the last moment, more or less, where you could get those those primary sources and get those interviews. And now, yeah. um, you know, about 15 years later, it's you have a much better delivery system for for this this historical document. Um, yeah, absolutely. And now, actually, I do want to change gears here a little bit. Um, so kind of getting into so the Channel Islands have a unique relationship with uh, with the United Kingdom. Um would you mind explaining that a little bit? Uh, yeah, so so basically the, the Channel Islands are uh, dependencies of the Crown. So they are technically uh, British, um, but they are not uh, UK. So United Kingdom is sort of uh, governed by, by Parliament. Um, Great Britain is is uh, overseen by the Crown and, and the Queen. So, so effectively, I, I think it was going all the way back to so 1066, William the Conqueror and all that. Um, the uh, they were part of the Normandy uh, dependency and of the French crown. So when William the Conqueror uh, took over, then the Channel Islands kind of came with it and and have been British ever since. And uh, so sort of a thousand years really of of British. Uh, uh, British rule and, and uh, have always been part of uh, of Great Britain in that way. So, um, but they've always had a very uh, sort of odd um, 
relationship because as i say they're not they're not part of the uk they're not part of europe um so so technically then uh, they, they sit outside of the eu um and uh yeah so, so it's always been um very much you know i grew up talking about the mainland you know talking about Britain, right. uh, you know going to england you, you, you talk about it as you know um yeah we, we go into the mainland you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so so yeah that was uh that that's the sort of setup so so they were um they were british territory and when when the germans took them over that made them effectively the only british territory con uh, conquered by by germany uh, right important, which is why they were such an important propaganda tool to them because um they had that little piece of little piece of uh, of great britain um uh, yeah i was actually uh kind of surprised that the population of the channel islands when when they were occupied was ninety thousand, which you know isn't a bustling metropolis but that's not not exactly a village either mm. that uh um ninety thousand citizens of uh of of britain were were under German occupation. Um, and actually getting into the invasion, um, I thought I was some kind of surprised that, uh, the, the Island of Guernsey was, was occupied by, by one guy. Yeah, pretty much. I think, um, <laughs> it was, there was one incident that led up, uh, led up to the, the invasion that was, um, they, they started scouting the islands. It, it was shortly after um, Dunkirk, and uh, and so the, the way was open. They, they could get to them. I mean, for people who don't know where the Channel Islands are, they sit about sort of 30, 40 miles off of the coast of, um, uh, of France near St. Malo. So, um, uh, and, and on a clear day, you know, you can see Granville and, and places like that. So um, so they were really close, and it wasn't a big step for them to, to get over there. So they started flying over, um, checking the islands. Obviously, as I say, we had no... Uh, defenses. There was no um, air. The, you know, the airstrips that were there were were not military. Um, and there was one incident that, that actually happened. Uh, I think it was June 28th, where um, 1940, uh, where they were they were flying over Guernsey um, and saw a, a row of of covered trucks um, on the pier. And so basically, they they just flew straight in, thinking it was a military convoy, um, bombed um, bombed that. And uh, there was uh, I think it was 22 people killed and a lot, a lot of people injured. Um, and actually, they were just uh, they were just tomato trucks um, that were the, the local farming um, was, was basically tomato farmers, and uh, they were just they were just tomatoes being loaded up onto boats to be sort of sent off to the UK. And uh, um, yeah, so so after that, uh, I think they realised when they had no when they weren't shot at, and, uh, you know that. Uh, there was something going on and um, they flew one lift off the plane um, down to, to scout and he saw that the airfield was open and there was no no defenses landed um, and and pretty much th that was it like this one guy <laughs> basically occupied the island because the the governor came uh, said to him you know we, we surrender and uh, there was there was no I mean what I, I guess they saw there was no point in uh, in trying to rattle what was the inevitable uh, they, they were definitely coming and there was no British army to to protect us so um so yeah it was uh yeah pretty pretty sort of strange i think maybe at that point you could say well more could have been done but uh but yeah yeah i think um in a lot of ways the the whole story of the occupation is kind of um an odd set of circumstances the fact that you know on that island just one luftwaffe officer landed said this is german now and then obviously the the actual occupying force of the 319 division showed up but then also um just the fact that the Germans bothered to occupy the islands in the first place. I mean, you've discussed how it, it was a propaganda um, move in a sense in that for if the um, hypothetical Operation Sea Lion ever took place, this mm -hmm. was a way to um, sort of set the stage for that. But from a yep. 
strategic or operational perspective. I mean, it doesn't really seem to make any sense. Do, do you have any perspective on that? Um, yeah, I, I think the uh, we actually call it we use the word folly, I think, in the uh, in the narration. And um, and it was to all intents and purposes, I, I think it was just like a massive uh, waste of uh, almost <laughs> everybody's time. But but actually, in a way that really it's like a silent war that nobody realizes kind of happened. Having so many German soldiers tied up in this pointless place that that nobody really strategically needed. Um meant that those soldiers weren't on the front line. They weren't defending the beaches of Normandy. They weren't fighting in uh, you know, the Somme. So, so basically, those, those soldiers were just removed from the board. They, they, they were just taken out of play. And, uh, and if, if you think the difference that, you know, 30,000, 40,000 soldiers could, could make, uh, you know, in any situation, that's uh, plus the, the hardware. I mean, I think we haven't, we haven't mentioned this, but the, the, the main thing that happened beside the, the propaganda was um, they they wanted to reinforce them because they were absolutely sure this invasion was coming and uh, and decided that um, well, the sort of retaliatory strike, they they started to um, reinforce the islands. And, and as I mentioned earlier, growing up around that, you, you couldn't believe the amount of effort that went into it. And one of the things my granddad said, because he was, you know, he was seeing firsthand all these bunkers built. He just said that um, they, they just kept building and they kept building for five years. They had nothing else to do. They, they just kept bringing more more laborers, more concrete, more guns and, and uh, you know, positions. And and some of the structures that are, that are, are there in the island are, are really amazing sort of structures from the time. You know, big um, three story underground bunkers. There was networks of tunnels like under the island. They, they connected everything. They, they moved over. Um, some of these giant Russian battleship guns that uh, gun emplacements. I can't remember the, the name for the for the gun, but they're like huge, huge guns that basically could shoot to the coast of France. And uh, and they, they moved all this stuff over and none of it got used. Basically, it just sat there for the whole war. Um, they, they did training exercises, but there was uh, there was basically not a shot, barely a shot fired in anger in the entire uh, sort of 1700 odd days that they that they occupied the islands. And um you just sort of it, it, the, the main thing I got from that was just thinking the, the, the harm and the damage and everything that could have been done if that was, you know, uh, on the French coast. <laughs> you know, uh, if all those soldiers were, you know, were, were at D-Day, you know, the difference it could have made uh, to the war. And uh, so so in a weird way, this this completely odd decision by Germany really shot them shot them in the foot um, you know, because they, uh, they they lost a lot of fighting men because of it. Um, but all of these guys, you know, survived the war. Um, so well, strange. The ones strange. that the ones that happened to be there uh, after yes. June 1944, because, I mean, the, you get into details in the documentary, you know, there were men who were transferred there from the east, you mm -hmm. know, over the course of the occupation, who I think it was described. They uh, said they felt like they had died and gone to heaven when they arrived there, because, I mean, it was a peaceful area. You know, all they had to do was um, build their their. Uh, their defenses, their bunkers, and and just kind of that was it. But uh, but some of them were transferred to the east from yes from the Channel Islands, which I can only imagine must have you know been absolutely devastating to anyone that happened to. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, heaven to hell, and and uh, and I think that's that was the, the, I think in in out of everything that came out of this, the most profound thing I learned um, was that connection between the East Front and the Eastern Front and and the Channel Lines. I just had no idea sort of existed. I mean, I guess soldiers were transferred all over, but but very specifically, it, it seemed because the 319 Division soldiers were unblooded, um, 
they they were kind of ripe for sending out to to the Russian front when they needed fresh fresh troops because everybody that was based in the island were were fresh they weren't battle they weren't battle hardened but they weren't sort of fatigued either and um, uh, and I just never considered that that, was, that had never been something that crossed my mind and and actually it was one of the the really great things that came out of this experience was was suddenly realizing that actually a lot of them lived the biggest fear they had to deal with apart from what was happening to their families back home was this idea that they might be transferred from the Channel Islands um, out to to the hell of you know, Stalingrad, and, and we had uh, stories from soldiers who uh, moved in both directions, and I think that was um, uh, yeah, that that idea that you'd go from Stalingrad to to a sunny day in Guernsey, you know, is I know for having grown up there, but it but that I mean it doesn't you, you can't imagine it. <laughs> it's no, I mean it, yeah, you definitely uh, you know feel for both the. The guys coming from the Eastern Front that, you know, this is their reprieve. The war is probably essentially over for them. And the guys mm. that get transferred to the East, I mean, uh, it's gut-wrenching. But um, but also at the, in the documentary you get into, uh, and we just touched on this earlier about the, um, it seems like there's actually quite a bit of freedom for the occupied population. I mean, uh, go on at some length uh, about how the, um, the theater was maintained and that the occupying, the censor, kind of just let the the players produce whatever material they wanted no matter how satirical or um offensive it might be to the to the regime in berlin yeah i think it was um the the the, the, the sort of official line was uh, was that they were they were there to uh, to to check for any uh you know any sort of work that that might cause offense but um but actually it seemed like the they, they got on quite well with the censor and, and there was a bit of a sort of wink and a nod so they they understood that some of the jokes i mean they, they had to be careful that it wasn't too too obvious because they would they would get in trouble for that but uh they used to put in stuff that would um you know that the islanders would understand or uh, uh you know swipes at, at uh, the regime and um and it was very clear that the censor understood those too but he let them they let them go and uh, you know that's that was a nice uh, yeah nice nice story i think it was it was interesting to sort of just see how the the islanders coped with it because i think the, the one word that nobody would ever consider using about world war ii generally speaking is boredom um that that's just not a word that you, know, you think of any of the other experiences when you hear about world war ii but but actually it was a word that came up really frequently in our interviews was people just saying actually a lot of the time it was just quite boring because the Cinema was completely propaganda, so they were importing all their sort of German newsreels that were saying about how great you know everything was going and and how you know they were going to beat the British and um, so so basically nobody really liked going to see any of that because uh, they knew it was propaganda. Um, radios were banned eventually. I, th I think for the first couple of years they actually let them keep radio sets till about forty two, and then uh, then after that they they decided to uh, to ban them completely. So people were using sort of um, crystal sets and things like that homemade uh, sets that they could uh, tune into to british um, bbc and things like that um but so, so really they just had to try and occupy themselves they, they occupy their time you know and uh, and most of that was um through things like music the theater uh, sports um you know all sorts of uh, of activities but um i think a lot for for the civilians uh, life Generally, they tried to get on as, as best they could for the soldiers. A lot of the time, I think they were just, as I say, just fairly bored, just going through training, training programs over and over again. And uh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's just amazing to hear that because you just, you know, you don't know what you're going to get when you go out for these interviews. And, uh, and to hear that from so many people, um, 
it's just kind of strange. We could have called it the boring war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It would have been relevant. Yeah. I mean, and to me, I think the, the, some of the most valuable stuff in the, in this is, uh, from those interviews with the people who were under occupation or the accounts from their, from their journals. But, um, also the perspective of the Germans is one that is sometimes, you don't uh, you know, hear or see, especially, uh, lower enlisted guys like that. And I think actually, um, so my grandfather was actually born in 1922, uh, as Tony was and, and fought in the second world war in, in the Pacific. And, uh, so it kind of had some similarities to him, especially, you know, there's a lot of sketches and, and artwork that he did in his journal. My grandfather was act, you know, he, he wasn't a professional artist or anything, but you know, he liked to paint and things. So those sort of, uh, small details for me anyway, help to flesh out the story and kind of make you just realize that all of these are all real people that, that experienced this, this odd little corner of the second world war that, um, I think most people probably aren't really aware of. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a story that just plays such a, a strange part in, um, in, in the, the overall sort of, um, tapestry of, uh, of the war, but, um, but I think is, uh, yeah, is really unique. It, it gen it's hard to say it's something is genuinely unique, I think, but the, um, but the circumstances and the way they kind of came down and, and where things went, I mean, the, um, the, I guess, you know, I don't want to spoil too much, for, but, but just the, the kind of ideas of what happened after D-Day and, and the way that almost the tables ended up being, being sort of turned because these, these Germans were uh, were cut off at that point, and uh, and it was really interesting finding out just what happened to them uh, after uh, when there was just no connection back to um, back to the mainland uh, Europe, and, uh, and and the stories we got from them, there, were, there was a couple of them that were just so honest, it was it was untrue, and and. Um, finding out about what happens when food starts to run out, what happens when uh, your morale is absolutely rock bottom and uh, and you're just stuck in this place, unable to do anything. And, and what does that do to you? Um, and uh, yeah, that that I think is where the real um, unique stories really came out. And uh, it was fascinating to, to be a part of that. Yeah, I was I was definitely kind of surprised at. So once the uh, cross channel invasion occurred, you know, the German occupation continued, but it was it was definitely an odd time and i was a little surprised at how things didn't really descend into chaos you know civil order and, and military order was more or less maintained um so Carl, if uh, any of the listeners want to see in tony's footsteps what do, what do they need to do to get there uh, so we, uh, it's available um, to rent and buy on uh, Vimeo. So um, I think the, uh, the URL. Uh, do, do you do show notes? Uh, if so, I'll uh, I can give you the, the URL. But uh, it's uh, Vimeo.com/slash-on-demand/slash-in-Tony's-footsteps, and Tony has an I, so it's T-O-N-I. Yes. Um, but, uh, yeah, if, uh, if people are interested, um, it would be lovely for, for everyone. I really want people to see this, especially people, um, maybe, uh, you know, things like the US and, and places like that where, where they don't, um, necessarily know, know about the channel lines or that story. Um, and, uh, yeah, I've set up a, a promo code. So if people enter, uh, CASUS 50, so, uh, C-A-S-U-S 50, uh, you get 50% off if you want to buy it. So, um, yeah, it'd be lovely. And if people could, sort of comment or share or anything like that, that would really help us as well. Okay, excellent. Yeah, and I'll definitely have a link to link to the uh, website on the uh, show notes at com on the uh, entry for this episode.
Oh, fantastic. We we also have a, a Facebook page, which um, which there's not a huge amount there at the moment. Um, but the idea is that's where we're going to start posting the uh, the actual uncut uh, interview footage. Uh, I've got it all I've got it all digitised, so it's a case of just cleaning it up a bit and uh, and trying to get that out there. So over time, we will start releasing. We've got about 20 hours worth of uh, uh, of interview footage. So um, so yeah, there's, there's going to be lots to lots to post, and we'll break it up and, and send that out. So uh, if people search for In Tony's Footsteps on Facebook, uh, facebook there is a there is a page there as well okay excellent well thanks for being on the show carl yeah thank you sean i really appreciate it it was a really great chat so thank you for the opportunity so that was my interview with carl timms of dark matter films i hope you enjoyed it thanks for listening everyone once again if you would like to purchase or rent the documentary you can find it at vimeo.com and search for in tony's footsteps tony spelled t-o-n-i when prompted you can use the promo code casus50 that's C-A-S-U-S-5-0 to get 50% off your purchase. You can also find the link and code at casusbellypodcast.com slash World War II. That's World War II with a number two under the blog entry for this episode.